0: of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at JoinMIDI.com.
1: Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: Welcome back to another episode of All Crime No Cattle. It's been a while uh, and there's several reasons for that. Uh, For one, let's address where we are right now. We're in the closet of our new home that we are renting and uh, things have been pretty crazy for a while. So we had a big move. We're living in a new place. I am working at a new job here in Central Texas and I had some really serious medical issues. But we are back and we are covering an episode that I am am very interested to learn more about. It's a very important episode. Erin's been kind of talking about it and teasing the topic for a while and we're ready to dive into it. Are you ready, Erin? I am ready. All right.
0: Yeah, I thought we would come back with a bang with a fascinating story about a polarizing figure. Madeline Murray O'Hare. From the 1960s and into the 1990s, Madeline Murray O'Hare was the voice and face of atheism in the United States. She was an activist for the separation of church and state, and is credited as the first person to organize atheists as a community and a political force in the country. To Middle America, she was brash, loud, undiplomatic, condescending, vulgar, and very, very controversial. She lived her life thumbing her nose in the face of traditional society, law enforcement, and even government agencies. In fact, in 1964, Life magazine first labeled her the most hated woman in America, a description that would follow her her entire life, and one that she repeated with some amount of pride.
2: Yeah, she sounds like a trendsetter, to say the least.
0: Absolutely. Madeline's closest partners in her business dealings, legal battles, and her life were her youngest son, John Garth Murray, and her granddaughter, Robin Murray. When the three went missing in September of 1995, under suspicious circumstances, local law enforcement, family, even friends were slow to respond. If it wasn't for the work of a ragtag assortment of people, some of whom Madeline fought with in life, journalists and agents from the FBI and IRS, we might never have known what happened to the Murray O'Hare family. Now, we have a lot to cover. The story is long and it is fascinating. So this will be a two-parter with the next episode coming out next week.
2: I, for one, think this story warrants a two-parter because there's so much material to get through and um, so much interesting material to get through, an interesting life and a very fascinating case.
0: Yeah, I mean, she truly was a historical figure. Yeah. And I think an important one, whether you hated her or you absolutely loved her. But before we get into the episode, let's first acknowledge our sources. Now, as I teased, journalists play a huge role in this story, whether it was writing about the family before their disappearance, oftentimes in sort of exposés about the family, or reporting on their case after the disappearance. Just a few of the biggest names are Lawrence Wright and Michael Hall from Texas Monthly, Robert Bryce from the Austin Chronicle, along with David Van Bema from Time Magazine and Katie Fairbank of the L.A. Times, But by far the most groundbreaking work came from John McCormick from the San Antonio Express News, and we will be talking a lot more about him in part two next week. There's also an excellent book by journalist Ted Dracos called Ungodly, a great read if you want a deeper understanding of this case. And by the way, all the links to those really prominent articles and other sources will be in the episode notes. And finally, I just want to mention that there is a Forensic Files episode about this case. We always like talking about those. And it was published way back in 2002, and it is called Without a Prayer.
2: Wow, the year I graduated. Forensic Files has been around a long time, y'all. Yeah, it has. (laughs) Well, with no further ado, let's get into it.
0: Madeline Murray O'Hare was born Madeline Elizabeth Mays on April 13, 1919, in Pittsburgh, although the family moved to Ohio soon after, which is where Madeline grew up. Her family was Presbyterian, and she was baptized at the age of four. But according to Madeline, and she told the story often, she rescinded her religion when she first sat down and read the Bible cover to cover at the age of 12 or 13. She later said, quote, I came away stunned with the hatred, the brutality, the sadomasochism, the cruelty, the killing, the ugliness. She said she became an atheist then and there. In October 1941, when she was 22, she married a man named John Henry Roths. But the marriage was ill-fated. Only two months later was the bombing of Pearl Harbor, which of course finally drew the United States into World War II. Both Madeline and John volunteered for service. He joined the Marines while Madeline enlisted in the Women's Army Corps, and they both got shipped out to different countries. Madeline ended up becoming an officer, a lieutenant, and served as a cryptographer in Africa and Europe. At least this is what she claimed.
2: Wow, that's really interesting that they both ended up serving and in different places and a cryptographer. That's really cool.
0: Yeah, um, there are bits and pieces of Madeline's life that are perhaps up for debate. There are people, some reporters who have challenged some of her uh, stories about her life, and one of them is her service. So there is a little bit of mystery, I guess you could say, about what she did when she was in the service.
2: Is it one of those things where once someone becomes such a huge icon, or, uh, you know, a very important person in history that people tend to like fudge the lines of truth and fact in some of the spots of their life?
0: A little bit, yeah. And and that's a lot of that is coming from Madeline herself.
2: Oh, okay. All
0: right. (laughs) In 1945, while stationed in Italy, she met a B-24 fighter pilot named Captain William J. Murray. Although both were married, they had an affair, and Madeline became pregnant. She wanted to marry Captain Murray, but there was a problem. He was a very devout Roman Catholic whose religion precluded divorce. Apparently not adultery, though.
2: Yeah, that's kind of interesting. Like one sin is okay, but the other is
0: not. I guess so. Madeline left the service and returned to Ohio, where she divorced her husband and then took Captain Murray's name, legally changing her name to Madeline Murray. Her son was born May 25th, 1946, and she gave him his father's name, William Joseph Murray. So
2: they're not married. He's still with someone. They've had an affair. They now have a child, and she's already changed her legal name to his name.
0: Yeah, so it's suggested that she took Captain Murray's name and named the child after him to both maybe embarrass him and to draw sympathy, because she was later able to successfully sue him for child support, even though he denied being William's father. Madeline got her bachelor's degree in history from Ashland University in Ohio, graduating second in her class. Soon after, her and her family moved to Houston, and she began working full-time as a probation officer while going to law school. She graduated from the South Texas College of Law in 1952. After graduating, she took the bar exam once, and it seems like she failed, and she never tried again. So she did have a law degree, and as we'll see, she will become very involved in the law throughout her life, but she was never a practicing lawyer.
2: Yeah. But it's interesting that her life has already taken her down the legal path, and she has probably already a very formative legal background, and uh, uh, that's just another arrow that she's going to have in her quiver that she can use later.
0: Yes, very much so. So her entire career, basically, is going to be invested in the law. Now, she would later claim to have other degrees, but there aren't any official records of any of them. So to put it nicely, again, these are the suggestions that Madeline did stretch the truth a little bit from time to time. Now, after her schooling, she and William moved to Baltimore. Madeline began dating a man named Michael. She became pregnant, and on November 16th, 1954, she gave birth to her second son, who she named John Garth Murray. Soon after, Madeline and Michael broke up, and although she spoke of him fondly, he wasn't a part of their lives and not much is known about him. And it was finally in 1960 when Madeline found the cause that would become her lifelong passion and would frame her and her children's entire lives. You see, Madeline went with her oldest son, William, who was 14 at the time, to register him for school. This was at Woodbourne Junior High, a part of the Baltimore public school system. As Madeline walked down the halls, she noticed that the students were reciting the Lord's Prayer. This obviously angered Madeline, who didn't approve of her son being forced into participating in the practices of Christianity, or any other religion for that matter.
2: Yeah, in a public school, specifically.
0: Yes. So she complained to the school board and requested that William be excused from participating. She simply wanted him to be able to leave the room. Yeah. Sounds fair enough, right? Well, the school board denied her request. So Madeline pulled William from school and contacted the press. She wrote to the Baltimore Sun, declaring herself a proud atheist and saying, quote, I have withdrawn my 14-year-old son from Woodbourne Junior High School in an act of civil disobedience. Soon, the story became a media sensation, and Madeline was all over the news talking about this great injustice. She filed a lawsuit against the Baltimore public school system, with William listed as the plaintiff in the case. The case charged that school-sponsored prayer was a violation of the First and Fourteenth Amendments of the Constitution. Now, Madeline was an incredibly intelligent, very outspoken woman, and she commanded media attention right from the start. This was the 60s, and Madeline is a single woman with two children born out of wedlock. She was an atheist actively trying to get prayer removed from schools. So you can see why she was hated and even feared, especially during these early years.
2: Yeah, and in that decade in particular, activism is at an all-time high. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's the it's the perfect storm of everything else that's going on in the 60s for someone like her to step up and say, hey, what about atheism? And they need a champion and someone to carry the mic for them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This is a time where things are very tumultuous. There's a lot of social change going on. And so she was sort of thrust in the middle of all of that. Or you could say she thrust herself into the middle of all that.
2: Yeah, it seems like she was her own lightning rod a little bit.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. So it's probably not surprising that the family began receiving a lot of backlash. Their cars got egged, people threw rocks through their windows and destroyed their garden. They were sent vicious letters and serious death threats. Madeline even claimed that John Garth's kitten was strangled.
2: Okay, so already things are escalating quite a bit.
0: Yes, right from the start, she and her family are a target of a lot of vicious threats and activity. But... Madeline's most fervent critics will point out that her crusade got her a lot of attention and it made her a lot of money. Because, of course, you can be a religious person and realize that maybe there's something wrong with school-sponsored, mandatory religious activities.
2: Yeah, it's not that hard of a concept to wrap your mind around, and I think it's a fair point that she's making.
0: Yeah, so people from all over began sending Madeline money to help fund her legal battle.
2: Like in the form of donations?
0: Yes, from the start, people were sending her mail and letters with a few bucks enclosed, for example, or a check for a certain amount of money just to help fund what she was doing.
2: But she doesn't have like a foundation or anything set up at this point.
0: Well, that's the thing. The publicity and the money gave Madeline an idea. And in 1963, she founded the organization American Atheists, the first atheist organization in the U.S., The group claimed to, quote, defend the civil rights of non-believers, work for the separation of church and state, and address issues of First Amendment public policy. She immediately began producing her own magazine as well, called the American Atheist Magazine. Wow. It featured collections of writings and articles about activism and atheism, along with pleas for money to help support the organization's goals. Both her sons, William and John Garth, were involved from the beginning, with William even helping to typeset and print the magazine for a distribution. And quickly, lots of donations to the cause began pouring in. The case against the Baltimore Board of Education went to court, and the judge ended up siding with the Board of Education. Really? Yes, but Madeline appealed the case to the Maryland Court of Appeals. But once again, that court also sided with the school board. So she appealed all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Williams' case was consolidated with another case, Abington School District versus Shemp, out of Philadelphia. It was presented before the Supreme Court in 1963.
2: Were both of these cases kind of similar and like the same thing that they were kind of filing against?
0: Yes, the Murray case was specifically about prayer in schools, and the Shemp case was specifically about mandatory Bible readings in schools. Mm. So both of those were consolidated together and presented before the Supreme Court. Gotcha. In an 8-to-1 vote, the court ruled that mandatory Bible reading in U.S. public schools was unconstitutional. So this was a landmark decision that changed American society and the public school system across the nation. And this was a time when prayer in school, Bible readings, and all sorts of Christian religious activities were not only tolerated, but they were required in up to 80% of public schools across the nation. This ruling triggered a massive cultural shift.
2: Oh yeah, I'm sure. They've got to adjust and switch gears away from everything they've been doing previously.
0: Yes, and this is every school is having to make these adjustments.
2: Yeah, what what are we going to fill our time with? that used to be Bible reading time. We have to, we have to change our curriculums and study different things. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, pretty much. Now, we are all aware of the recent rulings with the Supreme Court, especially with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But there was another recent ruling just last month where the Supreme Court ruled in a case that's very similar to Madeline's case. They ruled in favor of a high school football coach leading public prayers with students after games. Some people have suggested that this will open the door to further support of school-sponsored religious activities in the future.
2: Yeah, it's been all over the news and radio, even on like sports talk radio, which yeah. normally wouldn't, you know, <laughs> file in and and make an opinion on religion, you know, in schools and stuff, but it's kind of one of those things of where are we headed and what's the trajectory of the, n- the new legal standard where it comes to like religion in school, which I think she's trying to get down to the bottom to even back in the 1960s.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, even though this decision in this case occurred in 1963, this is still a topical and controversial subject, even today, 60 years later. But then the family got involved in an entirely different kind of legal battle. When William was 18, he began dating a classmate, 17-year-old Susan. Her father, who was allegedly very physically abusive, forbade the relationship. So Susan ran away to live with William and the Murray family. Soon after, Susan's father filed charges against William, saying that he was holding his underage daughter against her will and brainwashing her against her religion as her family was Jewish.
2: Oh, wow. So there's no truth to any of these claims from her dad? She's not being held against her will, I'm guessing.
0: No, she made the decision herself to move in with the Murrays.
2: Okay. So how did this pan out?
0: Well, soon after, Susan found out she was pregnant, and she was able to use that to her advantage to marry William while she was still underage without parental approval. So the family thought that that would be the end of it. They're married now, and everything's going to be okay.
2: But it sounds like it's not the end of it.
0: No, of course not. The Baltimore Police Department wasn't informed of the marriage, and they arrived at the Murray House to take Susan away anyway. Even though she was legally married to William, the officers wouldn't listen. And, of course, it suggested that there was at least some amount of prejudice from the force against this outspoken, uppity atheist family who had caused so many problems there in Baltimore. Madeline refused to let the officers enter without a warrant. Tempers flared, and both William and Madeline, as well as Madeline's mother, all ended up having physical altercations with the police officers.
2: Wow, even her mom had a physical altercation?
0: Even the mom. And at the end of it, multiple felony charges ended up being filed against the family. William received five counts of battery against a police officer, and Madeline received eight counts. They each were looking at maximum sentences of over a hundred years. This was huge.
2: That seems uh, outlandish.
0: Yeah, even Madeline's mother faced a possible 20-year sentence for slapping one of the police officers during the fight. And then in court, both William and Madeline became so incensed about the charges that they caused a big scene and William was slapped with an additional disorderly conduct charge. So things are bad. For the family right now.
2: Yeah, how are they going to get out of this?
0: Well, they posted bail and facing impossibly long prison sentences, the entire family decided to flee Baltimore for Honolulu, Hawaii. Huh. Okay. For some reason, Madeline had this idea in her head that because there are a lot of Buddhists in Honolulu and in Hawaii in general, that somehow... Atheists and her organization would be better accepted there.
2: Like they could get sanctuary or something.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Okay. There, on February 16th, 1965, Susan gave birth to a little girl named Robin. Life in Hawaii was short-lived, however, as the governor elected to have them extradited back to Maryland to face their charges. Once again, the family fled, this time to a little town outside of Mexico City, where Madeline got a job as a professor at an experimental, unaccredited college to teach sociology and law. While there, she met a man named Richard O'Hare, and the two married in 1965. Madeline and Richard were together for several years, but ended up separating sometime before his death in 1978.
2: So she tried fleeing to Honolulu, and then she actually left the country and went to Mexico for a time. Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: But eventually, though, the law once again caught up to mother and son. William left Mexico and went to the East Coast, where he was eventually discovered, arrested, and taken to Baltimore to face his charges. Meanwhile, Madeline was deported from Mexico and put on a plane to San Antonio, where she was also immediately arrested. She was shipped over to Austin, and a public hearing was held regarding whether or not she should be extradited back to Baltimore. She spoke at the hearing, quote, The Declaration of Independence of the Republic of Texas contains a ringing cry for religious liberty. There is no state in this great United States which can surpass Texas in the area of political dissent and religious liberty. So she's laying it on pretty thick. I don't know if all of us would agree with those sentiments necessarily, Madeline. But uh, yeah, she uh, is trying to really pull at the heartstrings of Texans.
2: Yeah, because she's not a Texan per se yet.
0: Not yet.
2: Yeah, but uh, she's definitely looking for support.
0: Yes. In the hearing, she also claimed that she would be murdered in Maryland and was in fear for her life, which honestly was a fair legitimate concern of hers because she was truly so hated in her hometown of Baltimore.
2: Yeah, she was in some really hot water.
0: Yes. But despite Madeline's protests, Texas Governor John Connolly ended up signing for her extradition back to Maryland. But in a strange series of events, fortune favored the Murray O'Hares. All of William's charges were dropped, with a judge ruling that the police had no right to prevent him from seeing his lawful wife. And it's
2: also interesting that, like, they never presented a warrant anyway. They just barged in there, so...
0: At the time, no, of no.
2: Yeah, so it seems like there could be, like, countersuit or, like, a good defense there, especially since this was a legal marriage.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, you know, the Baltimore police claimed that the family attacked them, but the family claimed that it was basically police brutality, that they admitted that William pushed one of the officers, but then the officers just, like, converged on him, beat him very badly Madeline, forever, for the rest of her life, had very serious neck and spinal cord injuries from this altercation with the police. So this was a very serious sort of fight that they had, really. Yeah. But strangely, the charges against Madeline herself were also vacated, but because of a strange turn of events. It just so happened that the Maryland Court of Appeals had reversed the murder conviction of a Buddhist man who had been found guilty of killing his wife. The man's argument was that because all jurors in the state of Maryland at the time were required to declare their belief in God, he was not judged by a jury of his peers because Buddhists do not believe in a God or a supreme being. Hmm. That ruling set off a huge chain reaction and thousands of grand jury indictments against Buddhists, Atheists and agnostics were voided across the entire state of Maryland. Wow, Including Madeline's on October 26, 1965.
2: Right place, right time.
0: Exactly. And this is a really interesting sort of legal turn of events going on in Maryland. I've never heard of this before. I thought it was really interesting how this all came about.
2: It is kind of an interesting precedent, though, that 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 case makes of requiring jury members to say that I believe in God before they become a part of the jury in some way, fashion, or form. Uh, But I can see how like this giant tsunami wave would cross all these other grand jury cases, like you said, and have to hit another reset button of where do we go for where do we go now? And how do we proceed with all these other cases that need to be tried So the Murray O'Hares, what happens at this point? Like, where do they go from here after her charges get thrown out? Their family doesn't have to worry about these other charges that are going on. What happens from this point?
0: Well, Madeline really must have meant what she said about seeing religious freedoms in the state of Texas, because she decided to remain in Austin. American atheists, with Madeline as its founder and president, continue to push multiple legal cases over the next decades. For example, she challenged the constitutionality of prayer at Austin City Council meetings. She tried to have the phrase, in God we trust, removed from U.S. currency. She successfully challenged to remove a provision requiring the belief of God from people holding office in Texas. And she sued over the weekly religious services that were being held in the White House. She brought lawsuits against churches, states, The FCC, NASA, journalists, including Texas Monthly, because of a brutal article by Lawrence Wright, corporations, everyone. Wow, she's been busy. And of course, all of these lawsuits were funded by the American atheists. On some of these, she was victorious, but most of them she was not. And none of them had the dramatic impact as the first case that she was involved with. But... They kept her relevant and active in her pursuit of the rights of non-believers and the separation of church and state. Over the years, Madeline built a kind of media empire. She had the American Atheist Organization, of course, but she also founded other similar atheist organizations around the country. Along with the magazine she started, she hosted her own radio show as well as a TV program called The American Atheist Forum that was broadcast on 140 channels. She also really embedded herself into popular culture at large. As I mentioned at the top, there was the big article in Life magazine in 1964 where she became known as the most hated woman in America.
1: Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com.
0: Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Then in 1965, she did a fascinating interview with Playboy magazine, where she talked about sex and the church and feminism and her particular brand of atheism. Ooh, scandalous. Yes. She also became a popular guest on many different television programs, Most notably, The Phil Donahue Show, The Merv Griffin Show, and The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson. But there were many, many more. Most of her TV appearances, though, were in the form of not an interview, but a debate. Where they'd throw her together with a preacher or a minister or someone, and the two would just go at each other.
2: Yeah, talk about the hot-button issues between the two.
0: Pretty much, yeah. And people tuned in. I mean, this was fascinating and polarizing And above all else, controversial. And her appearances always got big ratings. Meanwhile, Madeline also rubbed elbows with a lot of high-profile people, including actors and other celebrities. One of her most fascinating relationships was with another controversial figure, Larry Flint.
2: Wow, someone else who battled legal precedent quite a bit.
0: Yeah. I mean, he was also obviously for First Amendment rights and, Mm -hmm. and all of that. I could probably talk to you for about an hour about their bizarre, fascinating relationship with each other. But he met her first after interviewing her for Hustler magazine, and he called her the most brilliant woman he'd ever known. And they had a long history together. She was even her his speechwriter during his 1984 presidential campaign. Really? Yeah. While Madeline became a sort of celebrity atheist, either famous or infamous, depending on how you viewed her, William's path veered drastically away from his mother's. He admits that in his 20s, he began a descent into drug and alcohol abuse, extramarital affairs, and that he was physically abusive towards Susan. Eventually, Susan ended up divorcing William and left everything behind, including her daughter. Soon after, William also cut ties with his old life. Abandoned by both parents, Robin was adopted by Madeline, and she raised her as her daughter. William would go on to get married and have another child, but he says he continued abusing alcohol as well as his wife, and he got in trouble with the law once again. But eventually, through a rehab program, William J. Murray son of one of the most prominent and influential atheists in the world, who was the original plaintiff in a Supreme Court case that removed prayer from schools, found God. And according to William, his life was forever altered. He says he was able to work on his addictions, become a better person, and see the error of his mother's ways. This culminated in 1980, when William set out a press release officially stating that he had converted to Christianity. To add insult to injury, the statement was released on Mother's Day.
2: Oh, Oh, wow. What a kick to the shorts. I mean, that seems very personal. And and coming from a guy who is, like you said, has been a part of this entire movement from the very beginning, he was even helping make the magazine. It sounds like he was real pissed at his mom.
0: Yeah, I think he definitely was. And... There was – this wasn't something sudden. There was, I think, several years of them being estranged before this happened. So I don't think Mm. this was necessarily a big surprise, um, but it was, I think, a a big public FU to his mother.
2: Yeah, that's what it sounds like.
0: Yeah. Well, not to be outdone, Madeline responded publicly in kind, quote, one could call this a postnatal abortion on the part of a mother, I guess. I repudiate him entirely and completely for now and all times. He is beyond human forgiveness.
2: Wow. So he's just like completely ostracized forever into perpetuity, it sounds like.
0: Yes, absolutely. From then on, William and his mother, brother, and daughter were completely estranged and they never spoke again. Two years later, in 1982... William published an autobiography entitled My Life Without God, where he did not show Madeline in a very favorable light, suggesting that she was a neglectful mother who used him as a prop for her own personal ends. Well, William would move on to become a Baptist minister, as well as a lobbyist for social conservative issues. He also currently serves as president of the Religious Freedom Coalition, which is, according to its website a nonprofit religious organization which assists persecuted Christians in various areas of the world and advocates for Christian religious freedom, which kind of sounds like the American Atheist, but for Christians. Right. And even more interesting, just like his mother, his career also went on to include TV appearances and several book deals as well.
2: Boy, what a character arc and like a turn in his life where he's just completely gone about face and taken the exact opposite side of the fight and is really taking it to his mom.
0: Yeah, um, and for the rest of their lives, these two would be diametrically opposed to each other.
2: Did they ever debate each other on a TV show?
0: No, as far as I know, I think Madeline kind of, I mean, she had some negative things to say about him, but generally speaking, I don't really think that she spoke much about William after this. Whereas William, it does seem like he has spent a lot of his career talking about his mother negatively, because a lot of his career has been spent trying to undo what his mother had done.
2: Wow. Yeah, I mean, he wrote a book about it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, it's just really fascinating family destruction, really. Yeah. But with William gone, the American Atheist Organization became a family affair with John Garth and Robin as Madeline's left and right hands. In fact, in 1986, Madeline retired, and John Garth became president of the organization. Although, in truth, Madeline never really gave up control. She was always number one.
2: I bet she couldn't stay away for long. No, of course not. She's probably just pulling the strings from behind the scenes, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Robin began working for the American Atheist when she was just a teenager, and she was really smart. In fact, she graduated high school at 16, was accepted at Brown, but ended up going to the University of Texas on a full-ride scholarship, and she graduated at just 19 years old. Madeline ended up naming her secretary of the organization, but many people suggest that it was really Robin who should have been named president, given her prowess with running the organization. Oh, interesting. But either way, the three were tethered together for all their lives. Madeline, John Garth, and Robin all lived together in the same house, and they all worked together in the organization side by side. They ate every meal together, spent every vacation together, everything they did, they did together.
2: Ooh, sounds like they're spending a lot of time together. I, I, I don't know. Sometimes you need your own time.
0: Well, yeah, agreed. And, and there are definitely people who would suggest that this might not have been the healthiest of dynamics between them, that Madeline was very sort of controlling over John Garth and Robin and really dominated their lives
2: ran things with an iron fist, kind of, just very in control.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's what a lot of people have suggested, at least. Mm. And all three of them together were also wrapped up in the financial workings of the American Atheist Organization. You see, over the years, the American Atheists had amassed a large amount of wealth. Some of it was a combination of dues-paying members of the organization, some from merchandise sales... But most of it was from donations. And because Madeline was such an icon for decades, the amount of donations flowing in was massive. In 1985, in fact, Madeline was even able to purchase a large office building to serve as the American Atheist headquarters in Austin for $1.5 million in cash. So this wow. is just sort of an example of the kind of money they're working with.
2: They just bought it in cash. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy to think that that kind of infrastructure for this organization was here in Texas, in Austin. That's yeah, wild. that's right. Right at the Capitol. So they're they're right next door to the Capitol so that they can jump into legislation and legal battles like whenever they, they want to.
0: Yeah, I suppose that was the purpose of it, yeah. So they're pulling in all of this money. And... American atheists, along with all of Madeline's other organizations, were founded as nonprofits, and therefore all of this money was tax-exempt. Madeline, John Garth, and Robin were able to afford a very fine livelihood off of the organizations that they controlled. They lived in a large house in a nice area of Austin. They drove fine cars, Robin a Porsche, and John Garth a Mercedes-Benz. Oh, wow. John Garth once bragged to Texas Monthly that his suits cost around 500 to 600 bucks each. Their house, as well as their offices at the American Atheist headquarters, were plush and finely decorated. They went on month-long vacations around the world and only flew first class.
2: Oh, wow. The 1% of atheists.
0: Yeah, right? Well, accusations began to pile up that the family was using the organization's money as their personal bank accounts. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. The irony being, of course, that Madeline was operating just like the televangelists or churches that she rallied against by amassing money from followers, mostly in donations, not paying taxes on them, and then living in luxury. And of course, these are the things that Madeline's critics are saying.
2: Right. I mean, it is pretty hypocritical.
0: I think that you definitely have um, something to critique there for sure. There were even rumors that Madeline's other organizations, and she had seven or eight of them in total, were fronts or shell companies used so that she could move money around without being tracked, and that she had multiple offshore bank accounts to hide money from the federal government. Mm. And by the way, although these organizations had boards and officers, of course, Madeline, John Garth, and Robin ran and controlled all of them, and all of them were tax exempt. So all of this kicked off a very contentious battle with the IRS, which began around 1991. The IRS first tried filing criminal charges against her, but they didn't stick. Next, they filed to revoke the tax-exempt status of the organization and claimed that Robin and John Garth owned a combined total of $1.5 million in back taxes. They threatened that Madeline was going to owe a whole lot more before their investigation was complete.
2: That's a lot of back taxes.
0: Yes, it is. Meanwhile, Madeline was also embroiled in a series of protracted lawsuits with another rich and powerful atheist, James Hervey Johnson. That culminated in 1993 when Johnson slapped the whole family with racketeering charges under the RICO Act, saying that she had tried to seize control of his estate, which was worth like $16 million. He actually hired a team of people to comb through the family's finances. Along with these charges, it said that the family was deeply concerned that they were going to lose this case that Johnson had against them.
2: This sounds like an episode of The Sopranos, except for instead of Italian mobsters, they're atheist families that are trying to steal each other's territory and wealth. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, kind of, yeah, and there was, this was a years, years long feud with the Johnson estate that was going on for a very long time. I'm being very quick in describing it to you, but it's, it is interesting if you really wanted to go into it and dig up more information. Well, between the Johnson case in California and the IRS probe, there was real fear that the family was going to lose everything, all of their personal assets, as well as those of their organizations. And there is some evidence that with the possibility of losing everything on the horizon, the family started to at least toy with the idea of once again running, this time out of the country for good, where no one could touch them.
2: Are they going to go to like Panama or something?
0: Well, there were a couple of countries that were kind of battered around at this early state, Cuba, and more importantly, New Zealand. We will get to more about that later. Interesting. But according to some staff members, Madeline mentioned how they might show up to work one day to find the place shuttered and closed. They even reported that Madeline secretly started boxing up the American Atheist's huge library estimated to be worth over $3 million in anticipation of the move, along with liquidating other assets of their organization.
2: Okay, so this seemed like it was a legitimate plan at one point.
0: At this point point, in around, like, 1994, 1995, yes. Hmm. Now, amongst all of these problems, the family still was running the organization business as usual. The group needed a new typesetter for the magazine, so that's someone who arranges the layout of text for print, really important in newspapers and magazines.
2: Yeah, you had mentioned that her other son had done this for the magazine before he found God and left.
0: Yeah, yeah, so a long time before William was doing it. Well, they ran an ad in the Austin American Statesman, noting religious persons may feel uncomfortable. Uh, Well, yeah. In February of 1993, a man named David Waters applied for the position. David was 45, charming, intelligent, and Madeline took such a shine to him that she hired him on the spot. Immediately, David Waters became an invaluable asset to Madeline. He was really good at his job, and he got along with everyone really well, including Madeline herself, which was no easy task. A few months after David was hired on, his office computer disappeared, as well as a printer and a few other office supplies.
2: Okay, that's fishy.
0: Absolutely. Well, Madeline contacted the Austin Police Department, who said that there was no sign of forced entry and that it was likely an inside job. And they kind of left it at that. No one suspected that it was David himself who'd stolen the items. In fact, in early 1994, when Madeline's office manager quit, she offered David the position, and he gladly took it. This promotion came with a lot more responsibility, so this was basically like an office manager slash family's personal assistant type role. So David got the security codes for the alarm system, as well as the keys to the family home and the offices as well as passwords and access to certain accounts and banking information.
2: I don't know if I like where this is going. It seems like a lot of uh, responsibility for one person to hold in this organization.
0: Maybe not for one person to hold, but maybe for the wrong person to hold. Mm. Well, just a few weeks after David took over the position of office manager, $70,000 worth of government bearer bonds went missing from the safe in John Garth's office at the American Atheist headquarters.
2: So more things going missing.
0: Yes. And once again, Madeline went to the Austin police, and once again, they told her that the theft must have come from an employee, and they pretty much refused to investigate further. Which, as we will see, will be a running theme for the Austin police department in this case. Madeline interviewed her entire staff to try to figure out the culprit, but she had no luck. Once again, David Waters was not suspected. In March of 1994, Madeline, John Garth, and Robin had to fly out to California to appear in court for a hearing in the Johnson lawsuit. The family left David in charge in their absence, and John Garth gave him several blank signed checks so David could pay bills while they were away. When the family returned to the office two weeks later, they found the building empty and locked. They checked the answering machine and discovered a voicemail from David saying that he was resigning. They contacted their employees and discovered that in their absence, David had laid off the entire staff. wow. And soon they discovered that instead of using the checks to pay bills, David had cashed them in a series of transactions. In total, he'd taken $55,000 from the American Atheist's main corporate bank account.
2: And he fired everyone and the building's empty now. Yes. Jeez. Okay. So he just he gutted. He did a
0: lot. (laughs) Yeah.
2: He literally gutted them.
0: Now there was plenty of evidence to charge David Waters with the theft of the money right away. Not only had John Garth given him the blank signed checks, but the bank tellers remembered David Waters cashing them, and he had used his driver's license to do so.
2: Well, that's what that was going to be my next question: Is his name really even David Waters, or is he like? you know, using a false name to do all this and steal all this money.
0: No, it was just his name.
2: Wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Very brazen.
0: But yet again, when Madeline took the matter to the Austin Police Department, they once again declined to investigate. Okay, now why? (laughs) Basically, it's the same reason. They're saying that it is an internal matter, and it it has something to do with employee and employer, and we're going to step away.
2: But that doesn't seem right.
0: No, it's not, is it? <laughs> no,
2: that seems biased because they don't like the organization.
0: Well, it wasn't until Madeline took to her her supporters and launched a letter writing campaign against the department that they finally agreed to investigate. Still, it was a whole month before David Waters was arrested. That's when he told the APD and the DA's office his side of the story. He admitted to taking the $55,000 from the organization and said that he actually intended to steal almost twice that amount, but he said that the entire operation was the Murray O'Hare's idea. He said that they had been concerned about the ongoing court case back in California and told him that if it didn't work out in their favor, they were going to flee the country. John Garth gave him the checks and told him to cash them for a total of $100,000. He was to send a portion of the money to the family in California in case they needed to make a quick getaway and put the other portion in John Garth's safe. For his work, he said he was told to keep $15,000. He said he only got around to cashing out about $55,000 before his conscience got the better of him and he decided to quit the job.
2: Hmm. Yeah, so do we believe his story? Because that seems pretty ridiculous.
0: Well, on the one hand, the IRS probe and the Johnson case, everybody knew about those things and everybody knew that the family was worried about losing all of their assets. So on the one hand, people kind of believed that this story could have been possible. But the thing is. The Johnson case was months and months before it was actually going to be decided by the judge. Oh. So we were way far out from them needing to make that decision I'm about leaving.
2: In like preliminary stages.
0: Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is, you know, he was charged with, at least Madeline was accusing him of, char- of stealing $55,000, yet he is admitting to be an accomplice to stealing $100,000.
2: Yeah, that's real weird. I don't know that I've ever heard of a case like this where someone's admitting something like that to the police during an investigation thinking they're going to get away with it.
0: But for how unbelievable his story might have been, it must have convinced the APD and the DA's office because they agreed to allow him out on a personal recognizance bond. Everyone basically thought, oh, the atheists are a bunch of crooks anyway, so his story checks out. It took two more months before anyone bothered to do a criminal background check on David Waters. But the results were shocking. It turns out that David had a long record of criminal charges beginning from when he was a teenager in Illinois. At 17 years old, David, along with three of his friends, beat another teenage boy to death in a horrific act of violence. The boy's name was Dave Gibbs and he'd refused to allow David Waters to borrow his car. So David and the others beat the boy savagely with their fists and finally with a tree branch. At the end of it, David had used the vehicle to run over the boy's legs so he couldn't walk for help, and then they had left him to die.
2: Oh my god.
0: Yeah. David had been charged as an adult in that crime and pleaded guilty to avoid a death sentence, But even then, he only ended up serving 12 years behind bars before he'd been paroled. Shortly after that, he was imprisoned again after an assault on his mother, where he allegedly tore apart her house, beat her with a broom handle, and then urinated on her. Other than those crimes, he'd spent years in and out of prison serving time for other charges that included forgery, burglary, criminal trespass, and weapons charges. I thought
2: this guy was just a thief. He sounds like an absolute monster and a dangerous one.
0: Yes. But even though this was a violent criminal who'd previously served time for similar charges, I mean, if you're talking about forgery and theft, and there was a solid case against him for stealing a pretty large amount of money, there's a lot to suggest that the system continued to go easy on him. For example, when he was indicted for the theft, the grand jury suggested that he be held on a $50,000 bond, yet the DA's office agreed to only a $10,000 bond. Then, the court allowed the case to be postponed over and over again at David's attorney's request. It was first set for July 1994, but it kept getting pushed back for almost a year, and in some of these hearings, neither David nor his attorney even bothered to show up and yet their requests for postponement were still granted.
2: Huh. They really did not like the Murray O'Hares, did they?
0: That's very much what it seems like. And then, in May of 1995, David Waters agreed to a plea arrangement. He agreed to plead guilty to theft, along with three other charges, and in exchange, he got deferred adjudication.
2: Like what you get for a traffic ticket?
0: Yes. Or what you get if you are a first-time offender, or it's a very small kind of case. Huh. You know, a, a small, you know, charge. Yeah. not Nothing serious, of not
2: course. Not
0: $55,000. And not someone who has been a longtime career criminal.
2: Right, a violent <laughs> offender,
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, under the terms of his probation, he was ordered to stay away from the family and make restitution payments to them until he paid back the money he had stolen, so that $55,000. Okay. As long as he didn't violate the terms, in 10 years, the charge would be removed from his criminal record. Well, at least he has to pay it back, I guess. Well, uh, then... But I'm not thinking he's gonna. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. Then David claimed to be unable to afford the payments, so the judge agreed to decrease the amount of restitution to only $15,000.
2: Wait, I don't understand. He stole $55,000. Mm-hmm. Where did the money go?
0: Well, first of all, it was partially to pay for the attorney. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I guess that's true. Um,
0: yeah, who knows? Yeah. See, I mean, he spent it on something. But uh, now it's been decreased. He stole $55,000 and he oh only has to pay 15000 back.
2: This is ridiculous.
0: Mm-hmm. And then when Madeline asked the judge for a restraining order against him, citing his violent history... The judge declined to grant one, saying that the terms of his probation was enough to keep him away.
2: I don't think that's how it works with violent criminals. You can't just hand someone a rules card and say, oh, he has this, even though he has a track record of just annihilating people and just leaving a wake of destruction. I mean, he could could absolutely harm these people. A restraining order is not out of the question.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's what a lot of people said, but nope. Refused to actually give her one. Huh. There is some suggestion that the judge might have had a little bit of a bias against Madeline.
2: What, was he Catholic?
0: Well, it turns out that Madeline had had a previous interaction with the judge assigned to the case. This was Judge Wilford Flowers. Years before, Madeline had been sent a summons to appear in his courtroom for jury duty. She held a press conference saying that since jurors were mandated to take an oath to God in order to serve on juries, it was a violation of her rights, and she vowed to not appear in court. And for added drama, she had lit the jury summons on fire right there at the at the press conference. Oh. And yes, you can actually see a video of her doing this on YouTube if you're interested. <laughs> I mean... I kind
2: of also love this lady at the same time. Like, the, just the gall, her gall and her gumption. Like she's she's brave.
0: She was cer- certainly full of it. That's for sure. Worried that her previous stunt might have turned the judge against her, she had asked that Flowers recuse himself from this case, but he refused. Huh. So, of course, some people and Madeline herself has suggested that her stunt, along with. Just the general negative public opinion about her all played a role in David Waters' lax punishment.
2: That makes sense. But still, it's not right, though.
0: No, of course not. And Madeline was obviously very upset with the court's ruling, and she wanted to screen this injustice to every corner of the world. But Madeline was also genuinely scared. She'd heard all of the details of David's crimes, and she knew that he was potentially very dangerous. She didn't want to provoke a man like that.
2: Yeah, he sounds scary.
0: Yeah. So Madeline turned once again to her supporters. In a special article for the American Atheist magazine, she laid out the entire story. She described in detail how her ex-office manager, David Waters, had stolen money from the organization. She described the lackluster efforts of the Austin Police Department, the DA's office, along with the judge's ruling, saying that the system was biased against her. She also laid out all of David Waters' past crimes, from forgery to theft to murder to brutalizing and urinating on his own mother. She said that she wanted all this information to be public record, and that if anything bad should happen to her and her family, David Waters should be a prime suspect. Now, this article only went out to a few thousand people, and perhaps Madeline didn't believe that David Waters himself would ever have access to it. Shortly after she published the article, she got some incredibly lucky breaks in her legal battles that probably made her a very happy woman. First, the judge in the RICO lawsuit in California sided with Madeline. Oh. So now that's gone. Off her case. Millions of dollars. Pew, she didn't have to worry about it. Huh. Second, the IRS agreed to settle the $1.5 million debt they said John Garth and Robin owed, for a mere $75,000. And they agreed that upon payment, they would halt all investigations against the family.
2: Okay, so this means like they're gonna be able to keep their uh, non-profit status? Uh, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Keep their nonprofit status. The IRS is no longer going to be out to get them. Gotcha. And later still, they further decreased that amount to just $35,000. So okay. it was originally $1.5 million, down to 35000 like chump change, right? Yeah, Yeah, they can afford that. Yes, so the Murray O'Hares were off the hook for millions of dollars. These were both huge, much-needed wins, especially after what had happened with David Waters.
2: Right, sounds like they're on their road to recovery and maybe back in business.
0: Yes, absolutely. And for now, at least, there was no longer any reason why the family would need to flee like they had so many years before. That's why it was so strange when they disappeared just a few months later. On Monday, August 28, 1995, staff showed up to work at the American Atheist headquarters to find a typed message on the front door. It read, quote, All employees of American Atheist General Headquarters Incorporated. The Murray O'Hare family has been called out of town on an emergency basis. We do not know how long we will be gone at the time of the writing of this memo. Your paychecks for this period of August 16th through August 31st is enclosed. We do anticipate that we shall return prior to the next payroll period, close date of September 15th. The note was signed by John Garth Murray. Now, it wasn't unusual for the family to leave unexpectedly or to be kind of secretive with their comings and goings. But it was still odd for them to leave town without telling anyone.
2: Yeah, I mean, you would think they had, like, office administrators and office managers and people who would, who would have known that they were leaving.
0: Yeah, they did. And yeah, they did not let them know. So a staff member named Spike Tyson decided to drop by their home and check it out. Since the debacle with David Waters, Madeline had increased security measures at their home, and Spike didn't have the security codes to enter. But outside, he said that both Robin's Porsche and John Garth's Mercedes were both gone. Stranger still, the family's beloved dogs had been left behind in the backyard. This was Robin's Cocker Spaniels, Gannon and Shannon, and Madeline's Rat Terrier, Gallagher. Everyone who knew the family knew that they adored these dogs, and leaving them alone outside like that without making arrangements for the dog's care was very unusual for them. But it seemed like they had it under control, because the next day, Robin called the vet's office. She told the receptionist that there was a family emergency and they had to leave town, and she asked that someone come pick up the dogs and bring them to the clinic so they could be boarded. The receptionist who spoke to Robin would later say that this conversation was odd, because Robin was very distraught on the call, and it sounded like she was crying. Mm. And it was in it was out of proportion to the situation because it was no problem for the vet's office to go grab the dogs and board them. But Robin was seemed very upset, very emotional during this phone call.
2: But I guess in a way you could also rationalize it where she said there was a family emergency. So, like, you could imagine what if there was a death in the family? She's emotional or someone's terminally ill. Like, maybe that's why she's crying. I don't know. But there could also be something else going on, too
1: that's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, BDW, prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18. Plus.
0: A few days later, there was another phone call from the Murray O'Hare family. Using his cell phone, John Garth called the vice president of the American Atheists, a woman named Ellen Johnson. Ellen said that John Garth told her that the family had been called away on important business, but they would be returning as soon as they could. She said that John Garth didn't sound distressed or upset at all, and nothing in the conversation made her concerned that there was something amiss. Soon after that, Spike called John Garth on his cell phone to let him know that people from The Phil Donahue Show were calling once again. Madeline had been on the very first episode way back in 1967, as well as another episode in 1970. And Um. now, in 1995, they were asking to schedule her to appear on the final episode of the show ever.
2: Oh, wow, that's a big deal.
0: Yeah. Well, John Garth promised that he'd talk to Madeline about it and they would get back to them. Spike said that John Garth repeated that they were away on business, but he didn't want to get into the specifics, just that they would be back soon. Once again, Spike said that John Garth sounded completely normal on the phone and there was nothing to suggest that the family was in any danger. Throughout the month of September, Ellen and Spike continued to have these kind of mundane conversations with the family. They even spoke about their plans to picket at a visitation by the Pope, who was set to arrive for a brief tour of the US on October 5th. This was supposed to be a big event for Madeline's organization. Everybody was supposed to get together, go meet up where the Pope was going to be and they were all going to pick it. Spike and John Garth talked on the phone almost every day. Ellen also spoke to John Garth several times and even had a short conversation with Madeline. But again, nothing seemed to miss. But when John Garth asked her to mail them two blank checks from their corporate bank account, claiming that they needed the money, Ellen pushed back a little. She told them, half-jokingly, I have no idea if there's a gun to your head. but." She did eventually agree to send the checks to John Garth, but she did eventually agree to send the checks. John Garth gave her the address of a P.O. box in San Antonio, and Ellen sent the blank checks as well as her own check for $1,000 just to help them out. Hmm.
1: San Antonio,
0: by the way, is about 80 miles southwest of Austin, and this is the first indication that the Murray O'Hares were in San Antonio.
2: Yeah, and this also has some some trappings of David Waters in it, with the blank check situation before, where he had cashed blank checks, like we're sending blank checks again.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Well, Ellen also spoke to Robin, but their final conversation was much more tense. Ellen would later describe Robin as sounding afraid and distracted. Ellen asked her what was wrong, but Robin said nothing. But at the end of the conversation, Robin said something that would come to haunt Ellen. She said cryptically, quote, I know you'll do the right thing, and then hung up. Unfortunately, no one knew what the right thing was supposed to be.
2: Think hard. They're kidnapped. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. They're being held against their will. Do the right thing. <laughs> Tell the authorities.
0: Well, I mean, nobody knew what was going on. And sure. this is the thing, Madeline controlled her organizations and everything with such a firm hand that questioning her was just almost not done in the organization. So, Mm. I mean, if Madeline is telling them that everything is okay, in their mind, everything is okay.
2: So it's not that far away from like the day-to-day functioning uh, behavior of this nonprofit. Okay.
0: Yes, agreed. And again, the family, again, was very secretive. They were kind of weird about their finances. They were weird about- They were tight-knit. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, some of this stuff wasn't necessarily super weird for people. The final time anyone from the organization spoke to the Murray O'Hares was September 29th, 1995. After that date, none of the family ever called them or answered their calls again. There was no contact made to schedule Madeline's appearance on the Phil Donahue show. And on October 5th, when the Pope came for his visit... The family did not appear at the protest. It was like they had just disappeared. Over the next few months, rumors about the Murray O'Hare's disappearance started to go around. Ellen Johnson and Spike Tyson, who were pretty much speaking for the entire organization in the family's absence, put on a brave face to the outside world. They kept up the story that the family had told them, that they were away on important business, and there was nothing to be concerned about. Nobody wanted to make Madeline angry by telling people her business or going against the family's explicit word. But privately, they began to worry that something bad had happened. Spike decided to do some more digging at the family's home. Since he didn't have the code for the alarm, he got a ladder and crawled into the home through an AC duct. Oh. Which is very smart, yeah.
2: So he's John McClaning himself up into into the attic?
0: Yep. Okay. All right. And inside, it was obvious that no one had been there in weeks. Plants were dead, the mail was piled up, there was food rotting on the kitchen table as if they had just gotten up and left in the middle of a meal.
2: Okay, bad sign.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And while clothes and toiletries and things were missing, there were items still at the home that had been left behind as if the family had been in a huge hurry. For example, Madeline's insulin, which she needed every few hours, was still sitting in the refrigerator and every one of the family's passports had been left behind.
2: The the insulin is very problematic. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sound good. Yeah. That sounds like she's in bad shape even if she's alive at this point.
0: Well, the only real clue they had was the P.O. box with the San Antonio address. So Spike went down to San Antonio himself to see if he could find the family. He spoke to the local hospitals to see if any of the three had become injured or ill. He finally was able to speak to a pharmacist who told him that Madeline's blood pressure and heart medications had been refilled three times in September in San Antonio. Okay, that's something. Yes, and it's also assumed that she got her insulin at the same time. Okay. Uh, her insulin was not, there was not a prescription required for her insulin, so there wasn't an actual record of that. But it seemed like at least for the month of September, Madeline was taking care of, her, given her medications just fine.
2: Well, that's a good sign.
0: Yeah, but there wasn't any record of her medication being refilled after September. Ellen also tried to dig up information on the family, calling up atheist organizations and Madeline supporters all around the world, but no one seemed to know where they were. The months dragged on, and although there were a few probing questions by journalists and others, the story about the disappearance of the family wasn't really a story at all. With the American Atheist organization assuring people that Madeline, John Garth, and Robin were okay, not many people asked that many questions. Outside of the organization, the general assumption was that the family had absconded to avoid the IRS or to avoid charges, something that the family had done before. Most critics who assumed the worst of the family suggested that they probably had even stolen money from their organization to fund their escape and were living somewhere in luxury on an island somewhere despite the fact that they didn't even have their passports with them. Yeah. People even thought they knew exactly where the family was hiding out. New Zealand. See, the family had mentioned to more than one person about moving out to New Zealand if things ever got hot for them in the States. And John Garth himself had paid a visit to New Zealand shortly before their disappearance, suggesting that he was scoping it out before the planned move. The idea was strengthened even further when one ex-staffer told reporters that just before the family went missing, he discovered bank statements from a secret offshore account in New Zealand that held almost a million U.S. dollars. Oh. To many people, this was clear evidence that the family had funneled money away from the organization and were now living in paradise. In response to these reports, Ellen Johnson and Spike Tyson both made firm statements that there was no money missing from any of the accounts on record. But still, the idea that the family had run off willingly and left everything behind became the assumption of most people.
2: Wow. And the organization itself hasn't gone to the police yet.
0: No, they have not. And then in December of 1995, something happened that for a lot of people solidified the idea that the family was alive and well. As we will remember, the family's three dogs had been taken in by the vet's office to be Uh boarded. At the end of the year, the the vet was like, hey, we can't just board these dogs for the rest of eternity. You need to do something with them. So the American Atheist had taken them and kept them at the headquarters. So they were basically hanging out in the office building. Well, those three dogs also disappeared. First, Robin's dogs, Gannon and Shannon. And then a few months later, Madeline's dog, Gallagher, also went missing. To many, this served as proof that the family was alive and well, and they had arranged to retrieve the pets that they loved so much. So this solidified it for people like, oh, of course they're alive. And they they retrieved their dogs.
2: But they just, they were kind of living at the office. Like, they had, I guess, kennels there or beds for them or something, and then they just vanished? Yes. So they're thinking the family came into the office after hours and got the dogs at some point.
0: The family themselves, or most likely that they had hired somebody to come and basically steal the dogs so they could get the dogs back, yes.
2: Oh, okay. It still seems very fishy <laughs> to me.
0: Well, a few people, though, as you, Shay, I guess you would be in this camp, they did wonder if something more sinister had happened to the family. Some wondered if foul play was involved. After all, Madeline had made a lot of enemies in her career and received innumerable death threats. Maybe a religious fanatic had captured them, or maybe they'd been secretly arrested by the CIA or kidnapped by the Vatican. These were real threat, <laughs> real rumors going That's around. That's why they didn't
2: show up at the Pope protest is because they had already got them. The yes. Vatican police <laughs> had taken them to Vatican City and thrown them in the bottom of, of the Vatican City, I guess.
0: Yeah. Even though the case with David Waters had happened just months before the family went missing, his name was never mentioned amongst the speculation at this early time. Does
2: this guy have a superpower or something? Does he have, like, deflection abilities? Seems or like it, right? Just, he's easily ignored, it seems like.
0: Well, by the end of the year, the American Atheist's office building was put up for sale. For a while, it looked like the organization was going to fall apart completely without the Murray O'Hare's leadership. Eventually, though, the remaining officials and board members were able to right the ship under the leadership of Ellen Johnson, who became the new president of the organization. They were even able to continue the magazine that Madeline so dearly loved. Through it all, no one bothered to report the family as missing to the police. Why? Even William, when asked by a reporter if he planned on making a missing persons report for his estranged family responded dryly that he wouldn't make a missing persons report on people who didn't want to be found. What?
2: This is so bizarre.
0: And so, the story continued like this for a full year, with no further contact with the family and no official investigation into their whereabouts by law enforcement. And that's how the case could have remained if it wasn't for one reporter, a man named John McCormick whose own prying into the story launched a multi-agency probe that would eventually uncover what really happened to Madeline, John Garth, and Robin. And that is where we will leave off.
2: Aw, you left us on a cliffhanger. I want to know what happens. I want to have all the details. And I guess you're going to give them all to us next time. You're not going to hold anything back.
0: Yes, we will go into all of the details next time. This story is so crazy, and um, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you spe- specifically about the work of these journalists, about John McCormick, um, how he just sort of swoops in and really becomes the reason why this case was solved.
2: Ooh, fascinating. Uh, it really is the the whole family's life and the organization and the battle between uh, law enforcement and th- the media. And then also like these journalists, like digging into the case. It's all really fascinating. I can't wait to hear more about it in the next part.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Madeline Marie O'Hare herself was such a polarizing and fascinating historical figure. And I just did a very abridged shortened version of her early life and a lot of the things that she was doing so if you're interested i would highly recommend you go down and check out some of the links that we have in the bottom or just learn more about madeline's life because she was just such an interesting character
2: well i am interested and i am going to click on some of those links in the bottom especially the um forensic files
0: okay we'll do that but do it
2: after part two after part
0: two (laughs) okay so don't watch
2: forensic files until part two y'all but I'm, I'm definitely going to click on some of those links because I do want to learn more. She is a very fascinating person. But we do have other things to cover on the show that are also fascinating. Would you like... To and good. S- and and good And happy. Imagine that. Those things typically fall under the title of a segment in our show called Good News. Are you prepared for some good news?
0: I am prepared.
2: What about good news with a dog?
0: Every day I would like to hear that.
2: Woo! All right. Well, are you in luck? You've won the lottery, because we have good doggo news coming up right after this. Welcome back, everybody, to the segment called Good News. Today's good news comes to us from Darlene Janick Fairs from Fox26 Houston as well as Stephanie Winger from People Magazine. Now, early last month, a dog was unfortunately lost at sea, Aaron.
0: Ooh, how is a dog lost at sea?
2: Well, this poor dog, um, unfortunately, was lost somewhere out in the Gulf of Mexico. Now, let me tell you how it all went down. So the dog's owner, shrimp boat captain Keith Kiwi Sophus, he goes by Kiwi, uh, was out near San Leon catching shrimp. That was his job. He has a shrimp boat. And he was out there that day and unfortunately realized at some point that his his best friend, his dog, Monster, had unfortunately fallen overboard without anyone noticing.
0: No, yes. Monster!
2: And Monster is this like really beautiful uh, gray pit bull that he had adopted and rescued and as a puppy, and she had basically just spent her whole life working with him on the shrimp boat. So she was a shrimp boat dog. The point that Monster most likely fell out of the boat was, pr- unfortunately, probably like five miles from the shore. So he was out pulling up these shrimp areas, these shrimp nets, about five miles offshore where he thinks that she fell overboard. And this is a likely death sentence for any dog, because not a lot of dogs can swim five Five miles. miles. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, I couldn't. And I got thumbs. (laughs) I don't know what thumbs have to do with swimming, but...
2: (laughs) Even with like floaties and flippers, I don't think I'd make it. Yeah, right? Now, he did tell People Magazine, quote, I said, where's she at? It was the middle of the bay. Uh, pretty much, I mean, you know, open water, four or five miles from any type of land. My heart just fell apart. I couldn't even speak, but I turned around and I got my GPS coordinates and I said, we're going to find her. I looked up and down the coast for hours and hours until the sun went down and no monster in sight. (gasps) So having no luck, he rushes home and he gets on social media, on Facebook, and he posts this like really just tear jerking post quote, I lost one of the most important things in my whole world. One of the things that I truly love, my best friend, Monster Dog. We don't really know what happened. We think that she fell off the boat on a slick calm day. She had been on the boat her whole life since she was a puppy. I searched and searched. Hopefully somebody picked her up. We were around mile marker 71. If anyone hears any talk about her, please contact me. Totally heartbroken. Sad face, tear emoji. So for days, tips started like pouring in to Captain Keith and none were really fruitful. He went and checked out some of these tips and they weren't the right dogs. And he just, he, he started to kind of lose hope, especially after five days, uh, He he'd sort of given up that Monster hadn't made it. And he said, quote, I started telling myself she couldn't have made that swim. It's too far. There's no way that a dog could swim that far. She's gone. But that day when he had given up all hope, a final tip came in about a dog who looked very similar to Monster at a nearby trailer park who was chained to a post outside of a trailer. Captain Keith decided to check it out. And lo and behold, it was Monster Dog. <gasps> Monster had in fact made it and had been rescued by a local resident on the beach and they fed her and they watered her and they were, they were just kind of holding her until they could figure out like whose dog this was. And she swam that five miles back to shore. Wow. Yeah. And Keith told people magazine quote, I was crying so hard. I couldn't even talk. She was giving me so many kisses. I think her swimming every day on the boat saved her life. Uh, oh,
0: probably. She was probably a real good swimmer. Oh huh? yeah,
2: and uh, just just her just her being on the boat and being used to water is what really saved her. In quote. So yeah, I mean he he had these stories about how you know they would be pulling up the shrimp nets and and they would get all the shrimp and they'd empty them out into the pots and stuff. And then she would go over and play with the nets and sometimes she'd fall overboard and then she'd swim back to the area where she'd get up or she'd chase birds and jump off the boat, you know, (laughs) and stuff like that. But uh, yes, just being a water dog probably saved her.
0: Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, she swam
2: five miles.
0: That's a lot. Yeah.
2: But anyways, it's they're all reunited monster dog is back with captain kiwi so you know they can shrimp together and uh their photos are adorable i will also put the good news links in there because there are videos and photos of monster dog and And captain uh, kiwi you
0: gotta check those out yeah
2: for sure but there you go that's some good news
0: adorable i love it so much so happy that monster dog is okay
2: for sure
0: Right, y'all this is the after show where we thank some of our patrons but first you can find us on instagram at all crime no cattle and at twitter at acnc podcast and you can join our group in facebook called acnc posse discussion group y'all i did that all in my first try
2: <laughs> there was you got you got it there's no rust there
0: uh, there's a, a little bit it's fine yeah it's
2: <laughs> And always remember that you can find us at patreon.com slash all crime, no cattle. We have several different tiers where you can get stickers and swag and get shout outs uh, just like we're going to do right now. All right. Now, first and foremost, we have to thank all of our Texas Rangers. Uh, They are our biggest supporters and contributors to the material. They are honorary producers of every episode that we do on the show. So thank you very much. And those include Amanda Mattaford, Angel Moody, Don Maloney, Gail Parker, Jamie Gray, Jennifer in Magnolia, Jessica Layfield, Lee Darty, Lisa Layton, Mickey Sweet, and Sarah Nicholson. Thank you guys. You are the heart and soul of this show, and we appreciate you so much. Now, some recent contributors to the show who deserve a shout out include Emily, Jamie Carnes, Isabel Patterson, Rochelle Romine, Erica Mahoney, Lily, Chassidy Prosser, Carrie Chance, Kenny Ford, the third, Aliyah Punturi, Karen Barish, Kim, Jessica Couch, Anna Meza, Catherine Peavy, and Amanda Metaford. again. Thank you guys so much. Y'all are awesome. Thanks for becoming a part of our, our patrons. And I hope you've been enjoying the new Patreon only episodes that we've been putting out over there. We've still been putting content out there for all of our patrons. so, enjoy all of that and i hope you're all having the best of july as you're staying safe and cool in this heat wave that we are under it is oppressive i'm trying to say i'm ready for fall
0: (laughs) (laughs) well fall's uh, a few months coming but um you know what else is coming up soon halloween part two of this episode
2: (laughs) oh yeah part two of this episode yeah All right, y'all. Well, we'll see you next week. Uh, I'm excited about part two. And until next time, always remember, crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. Adios. Goodbye. Goodbye.
0: Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.